and I'm your brother, Fireman Diesel Ogaya, and welcome to the Class War Battlefield Podcast. When I started this show in 2011, my goal was to inform, inform, inform. Obviously, the show has evolved, a lot of new topics, a lot of new thoughts, taking on metaphysics, some spirituality, hitting you with all types of things that you may have never heard of, and some that you have. It's always lively. But now I'm coming to you to ask you to help me prolong this podcast. For years, I have been producing this podcast for free on your behalf. I am now coming to you to ask you to support this work. whatever you can do, please do. And now, the definition. Definition. Hello, I'm John Gatto. I'd like to share with you the 14 principles I discovered that are universal among these schools, even though each is quite a different animal than the next, they all concentrate on these 14 themes. The first of these themes is that no kid should graduate without a theory of human nature. What makes people tick? What buttons do you press to get the results from your fellow? man and woman that you want and where does the fund of lore come from not from psychology not even in a small way the fund of lore about human nature comes from history philosophy theology that's a curse word isn't it in public schooling literature and law these five mighty agencies of human history and the human mind have a wealth of information about what human beings are like now, have been like, and probably always will be like. And every kid is expected to have a degree of expertise drawn from these sources. I guess I should say these databases. The second requirement of these schools is that every graduate have a strong experience with the act of literacies. Now, we're all familiar with literacy as some exercise in reading, but the act of literacies are writing and public speaking. No matter how well developed your mind becomes on strong texts, it's useless to convince anyone else of your point of view unless you can write well and you can speak well. I think we've come to this juncture in history believing that that's some God-given gift that only a few people have. I can guarantee you, as a school teacher for 30 years, that both of those skills are extremely easy to teach. To teach public speaking you simply have to offer regular opportunities to speak before a group of strangers that could be a group as small as one two or three or it could be an auditorium full of strangers 
but the fact that they're not people that you feel comfortable with, I think is essential. To write well, it requires nothing more than that you write constantly and regularly, every day, preferably. The improvement will occur quite naturally. At that point, you might be able to profitably use some expert intervention, but in the process of reaching competency, intervention is the worst possible thing, simply the practice of doing it. So now we have a theory of human nature and skill in the act of literacies. Number three uh, among the curriculum themes that unite these elite private boarding schools is insight into the major institutional forms like our courts or our corporations or our military, including details of the ideas which drive them. I want to give you one sample of this so you can see how, how seriously uh, government schools fall short of the mark in offering insight into these institutions. Uh, we have all heard endlessly in schools of separation of powers that the governance of the United States is divided into at least three compartments, one an executive compartment, one a legislative compartment, that further divided into two compartments of its own, and finally a judicial department. Now, a little bit of reflection should show you what the purpose of that is. Not that we all live in harmony and agree in times of trouble, with what to say and do, but exactly the opposite of that. That the only possible way to arrive at an approximation of truth is through argument. The more skillful the argument on all sides, the better for the, the ultimate result of truth. So that people who appear before you in the media and say, in this time of trouble, dissent is not wanted are truly un-American because this country was the world's first laboratory of dissent on the part of everybody. That's really what the American dream is largely composed of. The fourth thing that private schools do, or elite private boarding schools do, that public schools hardly touch are the repeated exercises in the forms of good manners and politeness based on the utter truth that politeness and civility is the foundation of all future relationships, all future alliances, access to places that you might want to go there. Now don't tell me, well that's just common sense, because any public school I've ever been in, and I've been in hundreds, is a laboratory of rudeness, cruelty, sloppiness, coarseness. The fifth thing that private boarding schools emphasize is independent work.
think again about the possible reasons for that. In public schools as we know them, the teacher is charged with about 80 to 90 percent of the of filling the time uh, available, one way or another, and all the choices of the teachers. But in independent private boarding education, that ratio ideally is reversed. The sixth principle is that energetic physical sports aren't a luxury or a way to blow off steam, but they're absolutely the only way to confer grace on the human presence. And that that grace translates into power, into money later on. Also sports teach you practice in handling pain, in dealing with emergencies which occur regularly in sports. The seventh curricular theme in elite private boarding schools is a complete theory of access to any workplace or any person. You'd do better off than reading a civics textbook to set a kid, set a kid the challenge of getting a private meeting with the mayor of Los Angeles and let him work for a year on constructing and access to the mayor. Does that sound fanciful to you? My kids from a very ordinary New York public school got access not only to New York City's mayor, but to New York State's governor and CEOs beyond count. You can do that too. Teach your kid how to access places and people that he or she wants or needs. Number eight is responsibility as an utterly essential part of the curriculum. Now, yes, that includes things like washing dishes, but in elite private boarding schools, you ask a kid to care for a horse, to take some important community service, to go for leadership in clubs, much easier to get than you think because if the club is actually doing anything, it's a lot of hard work to be the leader and very few people want that. Always to grab for responsibility when it's offered and always to deliver more than is asked for. Number nine, and this is a long range comprehensive thing that needs to be checked regularly, but you don't ever quite get there. It's a rival at a personal code of standards. Those are standards in production, standards in behavior, and standards in morality. Number 10 is a familiarity with the master creations in music and painting in dance, in sculpture, in design, in architecture, in literature, in drama. To be at ease with the arts, because apart from religion, the arts are the only way to transcend the 
animal materiality of our lives to get in touch with a bigger you. Number 11 is the power of accurate observation and recording. I'll only give you one example of how you think this way, and if you push yourself, you will be able to supply many more. Power of accurate observation and recording. It used to be an axiom among the British upper classes that if you could not draw what you saw with your eye, then you, in fact, were not seeing what was there. So drawing wasn't a way to kill time, but a way to sharpen the perception. Number 12 is the ability to deal with challenges of all sorts. Now, this one's my favorite because one person's challenge is another person's ho-hum. To know what will challenge your son or your daughter, you have to know your son or daughter very, very well. If you have a kid who's painfully shy, obviously public presentations are the challenge that the kid needs as a corrective to uh, rather than live the rest of uh, their lives. If your child is a coward, that's a harsh word, but many people are natural cards. Maybe all of us are natural cards until we come to see that physical challenges really aren't so bad. And if they hurt, they don't hurt that much. Teach your kid if he gets knocked down, always to stand back up. If he gets knocked down again, to stand back up again. That would be a challenge. Number 13, we're coming to the end of this, this curricular list, is a habit of caution in reasoning to conclusions. Should Iraq be invaded by the most technologically sophisticated military in the history of the planet, and should hundreds of billions of dollars be allotted to that purpose? Well, maybe it should and maybe it shouldn't. But listening to a few government propaganda hours about the similarities between the leader of Iraq and Adolf Hitler is not the way to come to the conclusion, even though it's the way that 80 or 90 percent of us do. And finally, it's the constant development and testing of judgment. You make judgments, you discriminate value, and then you follow up. You keep an eye on your predictions to see how far skewed from what actually occurs and are, or how consistent with what transpires things are. I'm John Taylor Gatto, and this is what you've been missing. 1974. Oh. All right. Uh, Laura, 
uh, Year of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Sure. Well, it's a little late for him. Kanawha County is uh, in West Central West Virginia, Appalachia area. Okay. About 300,000 people uh, lived there in 1974. The city of Charleston uh, is in uh, the county, as well as, especially in 1974, a surrounding rural area. Uh, it's an area of extremes. Okay. City with the urban center, which is more diversified, varied manufacturing jobs, the state capital is there, and there's wealthy suburbs around it. Two-thirds of the county doing pretty well financially. Okay. Right. Out east. Uh-huh. Out to the east. And what they call the haulers of West Virginia, uh, the county could be considered a classic hillbilly area. Okay. Uh, so a third of the county is obviously very poor. Small houses and isolated valleys, winding roads, dozens and dozens of churches, mostly coal miners. Okay. Uh, they live for decades through poverty, black lung disease, and pretty much any hardship America could throw their way. And they were white. Okay. White as white can be. Super white. The, the whitest of the whites. Okay. Whitey whites. Uh, life was boom and bus cycles in the East, controlled by a few large coal companies. Uh, they lived in company housing, bought, had to shop at company stores. They got hurt in company mines. They would be arrested by company cops, sentenced by company judges. It's a company town. And when we've talked about that before. That basically just means like all on-site stores and everything are just it's yeah. made it's by the f- right, right. You can never get out of debt. It's right. just hell. Right. Jesus Christ. Uh, many of the young at this point were fleeing to cities like Pittsburgh and Cleveland when they were old enough. Uh, those who stayed were paid starvation wages, underemployed and undereducated. The area really fell behind much of America in the infrastructure. Okay. They, they were controlled by uh, the money in the urban areas around Charleston. People who had moved there to exploit labor, swing their weight around and run things. Sure. You know, city people, right. city folk. Right. Those in eastern Kanawha County came to resent them. Okay, sure. This is very applicable, Dave. It really is. So the coal miners and hillbillies, they believe in God. Uh, They also believe in getting justice through unions and strikes. They're a big, big union people. Okay. In 1974, uh, there was an energy crisis, so coal was doing a little bit better at that time. Uh, They had deep fundamentalist roots, super into the church, the born-again business, mm-hmm. as you like to call it. Yeah, the B-A-B. <laughs> Babs. Uh, you know, they, television started making its way out there, and they started to see the rest of the country. They're not wow. too thrilled about that's, it. Jesus, that's telling. In 74? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, TV is still... I talked... Yeah, yeah. What? I mean, it took a long time for... It took a long time for a lot of that stuff to get out there. That's crazy. Uh, civil rights. What'd you do? What would you do? Yeah. Fuck. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Sex. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they saw the civil rights movement. They saw women's the lib. Uh, women's lib, anti-war hippies, gay rights, drugs, crime, all, all the American and moral decline, right? They're seeing it all. That's what they're saying. Okay. Now, a woman in Alice Moore. and moral decline. Can you imagine? Oh, man. Yeah, your little head popping. So a young, a young lady named Alice Moore was born and raised in the small town of Acton, Tennessee. She was the daughter of a TVA dispatcher. A TVA? What's that? Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, you know uh, what that is? Don't NYPD the TVA, pal. 
What does that stand for? Oh, buddy, you don't know what the TVA is? What were you born yesterday? Uh, so Alice was raised in the Church of Christ. Good. When she was 17, she got married to Daryl Moore, who was a local young minister. Okay. Starting out in his ministering ways. Sure. So they started having kids. Uh, Alice did not go to college, but she read, uh, read a lot. She mm. took a lot in. Not a big fan of that. No, that is not, uh, no. Is not where she should be. <laughs> Alice believed man acted upon God's faith in standards set down by the Almighty. Okay. She rejected out of hand anything that was outside of this belief. So Alice and Daryl uh, moved to Charleston in uh, the early 70s. Okay. Had four kids at this point. Nice. And Alice, not very political, up until 1969. Okay. Uh-oh. When the Kanawha County Board of Education approved a sex education program. Oh, boy. I bet she knew it was not okay. Uh, so Alice, uh, obviously very concerned about what they're teaching to her kids with the sex ed stuff, Disgusting. as were other, other parents, other church-going parents. Uh, they want sex ed out of the schools. Alice is very charming. She's very well-spoken. So she became the spokeswoman uh, for a group of well-off parents. Great. Great. She called the sex education program, quote, a humanistic, atheistic attack on God. Some would call this group uh, people who have nothing better to do. Uh, the Charleston Daily Mail said the school board was indifferent to parents. People would complain and they just ignore it. Uh, they said the board seemed more like a prisoner to school administrators than being in charge. Right. So conservative parents push Alice to run for the county board of education. And she did, and she crushed her opponent. And very soon after, sex ed was removed for the, from the Kanawha County schools. <laughs> to, see? That's how you do it. Yeah. Welcome to democracy. Yes, Finally. So now Alice was a local voice for the right and for parents who were conservative. And she quickly had a following in the county and in the Charleston area. There was a recent state mandate that, quote, school books should portray the contributions of minorities to American culture. Oh, my God. This is, this is the next target? What? To remove that mm. from... Gonna unwhite this bitch a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you're wasting those valuable pages with accomplishments that Watson could have been making. <laughs> this, this was because the federal government had recently offered up money for districts that would embrace multiculturalism. All books up until now have been still be about, going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, so all books up until now have been about white people for white people. Right. How great white people, but mostly how great white men were. Sure. Right. And honestly, what? when you see the track record up until then, who could argue? Oh my God. Look at what's happening right now. It's all white men being amazing. Name one thing they've done wrong. Can't, can't think of anything. Thank you. Uh, one textbook publisher quote, there was an almost an absence of any African American literature. Okay. On, April 11th, 1974, the board was presented with 325 books to approve for the schools. Okay. Teachers said they thought it would be a typical meeting. Sure. That's not going to be. The books have been carefully selected uh, uh, over a year-long process with 
a selection committee and two sub-selection committees all made up of teachers. Okay. So it's just all teachers. So teachers books. figuring out what books would be great for the year. A lot, and... of, teachers, a lot of teachers are very excited because they get to teach something new. Right. right? Authors of new but, books hey, included. Can I ask you a question? Have they yeah. consulted the one book they should be consulting about their decision? Well, that's a very good question, Gary. Have they I mean, been consulting the good book? You're talking about the uh, cook, uh, cookbook? The Holly Bibble. Oh, the Bibble. Yes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're going to get to that. Authors of new books included James Baldwin and George Orwell. But Alice wow. objected. Alice objected to what was known as a dialectology. This was a teaching approach to encourage students to feel more comfortable expressing themselves by using their natural dialect. So everyone talks a little bit differently. All of our cultures have a little bit of a different thing that they say, a little bit different way they say words. Sure. So they were like, let's, let's make kids more comfortable learning by uh, using some of that language. Okay. Alice, quote, there is a correct way to speak. Oh, my God. There may be some slight variations, but dem is never correct. Uh. Dat is never correct for that. If we are talking about this as a dialectology, I won't approve these books. Oh, God, Dave. That's... It, and it's, at the time, this is an incredibly rare moment for a parent to question the expertise of teachers. My God, what? Yes. Uh, you mean there was a time when that... they were respected and paid and all that? <laughs> yes. I wow. mean, this is literally, yeah, this is literally something That's that had history happened. teachers should teach in school. The history of yeah. how teachers used to just have it so much f***ing better. You know, okay, we so, used to be uh, really appreciated. We're just, uh, this is day one, but we're just going to go straight to chapter 18. Uh, the chapter's called Your Parents Are F***ing Idiots. Uh, finally. Another board member asked her why they shouldn't leave it up to the professionals. That's why they were paying them, he said. Quote, I mean, what am I? I'm an accountant. Man. Yeah. After some discussion, the board accepted the books, but because of Alice, they didn't buy the books and they put it off until they could be looked over more. So they're going to buy out. They're going to re-scrutinize or they're going to let Alice scrutinize the books. Yeah, that's basically what's happening. Uh, so right when the meeting ended, Alice's husband walked up to her, handed her a book and said, quote, I want you to look at what you've just adopted. He was holding Malcolm X's autobiography. Oh, wow. That's for her. She's like, oh, my God. Uh, oh. Like, keeps falling into chairs. Oh, more chairs <laughs> out the window. The window! Oh, oh. Walks into traffic. No! He pointed to a quote. All praise is due to Allah that I moved to Boston when I did. If I hadn't, I'd probably still be a brainwashed black Christian. Oh, man. Alice was her horrified. Her heart just jumps out of her chest and smashes against the wall. This <laughs> cannot be. She then told the superintendent she wanted every single book sent to her house. Uh, Alice then went over the books, and she was appalled. It was her worst nightmare. Yeah. It was every nightmare she could have imagined. Sure. She found quotes from monsters like Allen Ginsberg, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, 
Eldridge Cleaver, oh. and, jo- and George Jackson. Oh. There was swearing. Mm-hmm. There was sex talk. Oh, no. And anti-American Black Panther quotes. On May 16th, the board met again with the textbook selection committee who was requested to come and explain why they had chosen the books they chose. Mm-hmm. But when they tried to explain, Alice would cut them off and challenge them. And not just about the book's content, but the entire idea behind this new program, which was state-mandated. Oh, God. Which was government, you know. Sure. Push. So she's just like, no, mm-hmm. I veto it. She argued emphasizing race and culture was anti-Christian. <laughs> What? How is I that possible? <laughs> because, because in her mind, race and culture. The way it is, it's about white people, and she's like, you can't emphasize race, right? right? Well, that's what you're doing with all the books about white people. It's yeah. like you can't emphasize race. Right, right? But white doing. is not a race. That's like when you call the first <laughs> movie the first one. It's the original. It's not the first one. You don't say Jaws one. Jaws. Uh, so she argued emphasizing race and culture was anti-Christian, anti-American. Unless it's the white version. Anti-authoritarian and depressing. Good Lord. Someone's worried. Sorry, anti-authority. Yeah, not anti-authoritarian. Uh, she didn't think a state institution had the right to teach something other than what she was teaching her children. What a crazy concept. But that's what they, that's still a thing. Oh, that's, a, that's, that's, more, that's a thing more than ever. But even just hearing that's, it, you're just like, yeah. what is the point then? No. Why would you want your kid? I want my kid to learn stuff I don't know. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah, hire a babysitter so you can watch her watch. <laughs> so, over the month before the next meeting, Alice was busy contacting people to rally the cause. She got wealthy mothers on her side. What was the, Were spoke, they racially diverse? These group of humans? Oh, that's weird. No, strongly all white. White. Interesting. White ladies. White ladies, very powerful group. Yep. She spoke in front of church groups, community organizations, anywhere she could. She would explain what upset her and read quotes from the books. She handed out printed up excerpts that she thought were offensive. Alice was also worried the books would expose white kids to black people talk. Mm -hmm. Then they would learn to, quote, speak in ghetto dialect. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm. Do not want... How many... How, how many young white men have been ruined by oh, young Dave, white men? Ruined you, by I, being able to speak ghetto dialect? No, I remember when I was 18 and I finally got to listen to hip hoppery. Oh like, my god! Oh, thank God, I didn't have this when my brain was developing. <laughs> Who knows what I would have been, mother tennis? At these meetings, she would often say, "School should just teach her kids to read, basic math, a bit of American and world history." Government in English, and that's it. She said the she said the school was violent. I, I mean, just, just I would just be like, lady, lady, shut the up, would you? Would you shut the up, please? Uh, she said the school was violating her rights as a parent because when it came to her kids, they were quote intent of making them more open minded than I wanted them to be. How is she saying? I mean, it's like. <laughs> it was because there was like a 20 year period where we buried our rhetoric and now we're back out in the open. But like this, this is like it's like the cicadas of honesty. 
But this is like back when she, like, what she's saying. You're literally saying, I want my child to be close. I need a, a smaller brain in my boy. The vice president of the local Charleston NAACP said he read the books and didn't find them offensive. But Dave, June 24th, Dave uh, was he white? No. Oh, well. Oh, Interesting uh, how that it. is always part of the issue, isn't it? You did find a hole in my theory. Mm-hmm. Like a jug. Uh, on June 24th, 10 ministers came out and said they supported the books. But two days later, 27 other ministers said the books were immoral and indecent. We need to find more ministers. Uh, that day, uh, the West Virginia Human Rights Commission backed the books. So there's all kinds of people coming out now that would work to yeah, come down on either side. But it's, it's, also, a, it's, it's also just, yeah, exactly. It's also one of those things now where now it's a thing. This is where if you're the school, you just immediately go, take your kid to a different school then, lady. Like, if you got a problem, go somewhere else. But because now it's a thing, now it's an issue, now it's going to be able to build. So it's building. And she's been rounding people up. So up until now, a normal school board meeting had about 25 people attending. Okay. The meeting on June 27th had over 2,000. Oh, my God. The audience filled the hallways. They stood outside in the rain. They peeked through windows. They're all holding umbrellas. By the way, they listened over loudspeakers. This is <laughs> this is this is what happens when you don't have TV. That's right. You know, you're like, well, let's go. Yeah. Alice had a petition signed by twelve thousand people in the county. The petition stated books should not be allowed if they led to the questioning of quote the family unit, which comes. From the marriage of a man and woman. Ah, I'm going to be sick. Belief in God. The American political system. Ah, the, the free <laughs> enterprise. Every fiber of me is like, ow. The free enterprise economic system. <laughs> the laws and this legal system. Been, Dave, this lady has been white for too long. <laughs> <laughs> the laws and legal system of the nation and state. Uh, the history of America as the record of one of the noblest civilizations that has ever existed. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, I just it's like, that's what I mean. It's like, where would you and I start to argue with this woman? We would be like, she literally, we'd be like, lady, we are so overwhelmed with what to say to you that we can't talk. I, you just hit her in the face with a pan. Like, I don't know what else to do with this. I mean, literally, like, you cannot... I mean, I'd be like, no, oh, God damn it. Never mind. You're right. And that's just some of it. It goes on and on. I'm sure. Uh, so the board, with all these people, they give in to the protest and agree not to buy eight of the most upsetting books. Okay. But it's a start. One was Sigmund Freud's uh, character and anal eroticism. <laughs> Alice was, Alice Wait, was disturbed. Wait, what? Character and anal it's not anal. It's not that anal. It's uh, the other. Well, you say so. character. I mean, that to me just sounds and, like. Or it could be. I don't know. I haven't read Freud. Maybe he was talking about buttholes. I would hope so. I hope he was. That's right. Oh, yeah. um, he, did a lot of, he did a lot of blow. So That's right. You can see that yep. Loved a little bit of blow. Uh, uh, she brought up a chapter in the Eldritch Cleaver uh, in which book in which he discussed the crime of raping white women. <clears throat> even though the chapter had been removed from the textbook. Okay. So what? Okay. All right. Well, it was in, it was in his, it was in his autobiography, but they had taken it out of the textbook right. for kids. Sure. 
Alice said this did not represent black culture. She's saying Eldridge Cleaver does not represent black culture. A member of the local NAACP chapter stood up and said in a very reasonable language and tone uh, that maybe a white woman shouldn't be discussing what does and does not represent black culture. Wow. How dare the point you? Alice, the point Alice drove home was that these textbooks were questioning the American values of parents and the community. storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth. This is why I say it's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. This is an NBC News hotline special report. We're at a turning point in the history of this nation. We need to stand for freedom. There's an escalating authoritarianism and even a creeping fascism. Freedom it's precious. If we don't fight for it, you lose it. This much is clear. We must rebel. This is our country. We have always lived in it. We were happy. Then you came. We have to protect ourselves. We have to save our country. We have to fight for what is ours. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your brother, Brian Mayer. Peace. Welcome to this Class War Battlefield podcast episode. So I want to talk to you today about a revelation I received on education. And this revelation has been slow in coming, and it boils down to basically this. If you want to understand or even envision the future of a country, look at its education system. What do I mean? If we were talking about pillars or vines that intertwined to form the moving structures in a society that grow towards a conclusive end. Education is possibly one of the primary center pillars or bonds. Why? Because in education, you place the overwhelming, overwhelming task. And Actually, that's the wrong word to use. Overwhelming is incorrect. The, I guess, the real word um, to use is the extraordinary task. So you place the extraordinary task of preparing the citizens who will lead your future into this infrastructure. What America or any country will look like in 30 years can be easily predicted by the state of education in the present time. And I would argue, if you look at the state of education over a 15-year period and project forward about 30 years, you might be able to scale it back 25 or maybe even 20 years in some instances, 
you can get a very clear snapshot as to where the country is headed. Let me explain to you how this became evidently clear to me. Um, this starts way back when I was in senior, uh, my senior year of high school. That was the year 2000. I was very close to a lot of teachers because a lot of teachers could talk to me like an adult. I was very innocent and naive, but I understood things often like an adult did, which is very, it was a very strange combination, but it was what it was. Moreover, when school ended, I was kind of lost when I graduated. So I would stop by when I didn't have anything really going on, and I would sit and I would talk with the, um, the guidance counselor, or I would sit with, um, you know, this teacher or that teacher, just to kind of talk when I didn't have anything going on, you know, to keep my mind occupied on something. And they let me do it <laughs> because I was not a threat. Everybody knew me. Everybody liked me. And as one of my teachers said, you know, if we could have created a 13th grade just to bring you and, a, and, and your 12th grade class back, we would have because your class was really the pinnacle of what we've seen um, over the last 20 or so years. And it was. My class at the time graduated. And it was a small school, kind of a country school. So, you know, I take it with a grain of salt. We had over 90 kids graduate. I know some of you were like, what? Holy man. There was a school that was not even um, 15, 15 minutes from us that graduated like 300 and something, right? So I get it. <laughs> we had It was a small school. But at the time, my, my class graduated with the highest GPA of any um, class before and possibly even since. Now, this was a testament to many graduating classes before us because even though our educational, I'm sorry, not our education, but our school sports teams were so-so, except for basketball. Our basketball team was always good because that was mostly where all the black kids in the community played, and um, they went out and always and showed up. I mean, it was really a powerhouse. Um, but football, soccer was also good. Can't, can't forget soccer. The girls' powerhouses. Track and field was also where we did our thing. But um, for several years of my being in that 7th through 12th grade high school, junior high, high school, um, our 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade um, sports teams often won trophies based on academics. Now, you might say, well, pfft, that doesn't mean nothing. Ugh, people were probably just cheating and yada, yada, yada. And here's the funny thing about that. I remember I was talking with a friend of mine, an older friend of mine who was in school you know, before me, and he was like, yeah, there was a little bit of cheating going on, but 
In reality, no, there wasn't that much cheating going on. Not at that school, because the way that it was explained by some of the um, old-fashioned folks who were there, who had been to bigger schools, who understood the challenges of kids coming out of a school like ours that wasn't really ranked high academically, if you didn't get good grades, it was going to be, and if you didn't put in the effort, actually, to get those good grades, it was going to be very difficult for you to sustain academic life in bigger schools. And to the school's credit, it sent a lot of kids to, you know, D1, D2, very good schools, not necessarily because of sports. A few of them got sports scholarships, but mainly on their academics. The school was very proud of its academics. So my class built from that. A lot of our older brothers and sisters and cousins and nieces, and uh, not nieces, those would be younger, um, um, cousins and aunts and uncles and stuff, they came before us. And because they had good many of them, not all of them, had good educational and academic practices. My class had good educational and, and academic practices. Um, I remember, though, talking to, I think it was in the spring. It's probably May. Yeah, because it was in the waning days of us actually being in school. Um... I was talking with Mr. Morrissey, who has now since passed away. Um, he passed away a couple of years after we graduated, actually, of a heart attack, if I remember correctly. But, um, and it was so funny because looking back at him, he was, he was your quintessential, like, 1980s, 1990s type of um, student counselor, the hair and everything was just right there in place, the, the thin glasses, it was phenomenal. But him and I were talking, and he says to me, he goes, you know, let, can, can, I, can I tell you something that you, you know, don't go and run and run? And I go, man, you've told me a lot of things that I've never said to anybody. And he goes, name me a couple of them, and I named them. And he goes, oh, okay, you do remember. Well, you know, I really worry after your class. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, I really worry after your class because I'm watching some of these people who are coming up. Now, mind you, some of these some of these people coming up were the younger brothers and sisters of us, but fewer and fewer of them were. Like, most of our siblings were graduating in the next two or three years. And he distinguished that it was after the 10th grade year and he said, you know, there's a little hope in the ninth grade year, but the seventh and eighth graders and the ones coming up from sixth grade, they look lost. And I'm really concerned about not only their future, but the future of this country because they look so unprepared. When I came back to speak to Mr. Morrissey in October, I think it was, of... um. Oh, you know, actually, I believe. Yes, so in October of 2000, when I went back to talk with him, um, he was he was in the same mood. I said, you know, have, has your mind changed about that? Is anything giving you hope? And he goes, no, no, 
Now, I still, I still feel like, you know, I'm really concerned about that generation. And I believe I went back and spoke to him one more time. I believe I went back to speak to him about it one more time um, before he passed away. Um, and he held the same belief. He was still concerned. And looking at where my little community is today, it's dying. Now, I don't blame it on the young people. And I barely blame it on the adults. Um, the town that I grew up in was a victim of neoliberalism. And one of the most interesting things occurred to me the other day about neoliberalism. At the time that NAFTA was being implemented, coin that time coincided with Bill Clinton destroying welfare as you know it. So at a time when Bill Clinton signed legislation, which all the corporations loved, which allowed tens of millions of jobs to go overseas from this country, he was also killing the loan programs, L-O-N-E programs, that had enabled many people to survive even as they worked jobs that weren't paying them a living wage. It's kind of diabolical if you really think about it. And before you say, well, that's the Democrats for you, Newt Gingrich was right there smiling. It was something that the Republicans wanted to do for years. So both parties have problems there. NAFTA ravaged our community, ravaged our area. I remember um, in the immediate aftermath, and I didn't get it, I didn't understand. So, so there was these cycles that people would do, and I was getting used to them when I was 14 and 15 and 16. I would hear people, uh, and I'm sorry, I started when I was 14. I was getting used to them when I was 13, 14, and 15. Um, I would hear people reference going to work for these companies because, well, my sister worked for this company when she was 15 or my brother worked for this company when he was, um, at the time you could work when you were 14 up until uh, 1997, I think. No, 96. Because they changed it in 96 because I was going to be able to work and I couldn't. I was mad. Um... In New York State, you could work when you were 14, but they changed the law either in 95 or 96, and I couldn't work. I had to wait till I was 15. Um, but all these, you know, all these companies that people, young people, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, would go and work at for several hours a day, suddenly started closing in 96 and 97. There were a couple of really huge ones that immediately pulled out. And we're like, yep, we're leaving, we're going to Mexico, yep, we're leaving, we're going to China. Or Singapore or someplace. And even though that didn't last long, that was only about two years worth of just all these companies throughout. I grew up in this place called Wayne County, um, New York. All of these companies leaving between like 1996 through 1999... Even though it wasn't long, it was devastating. I mean, you had 
dozens of companies that employed thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people suddenly get up and move. Then things slowed to a trickle, and it took another 10 years, but, you know, a lot of places were hollowed out. Basically, you know, you have some companies that couldn't move because of um, geography, they needed to be there, but basically there is slim pickings in, in that county now, and it's hard to live um, subsistently in that county. So, you know, I, I'm, I have a lot of compassion for people because they were victims of NAFTA. Very bad victims of NAFTA. That stated, education touches every other aspect of the society. Because the children are born into families, and those family members have connections to other aspects of society, particularly the parents have connections to what? Jobs. What, the, what is often called the labor market, the economy, you know, which is supposed to be somehow apart from society, yet connected to it. If your family unit in your society is shaky because the economy is shaky, that's going to impact how that child deals with learning and education. If your schools are underfunded, your parents aren't making a lot of money because the economy is built on greed, you have dual problems causing stress on that child who is trying to get an education which will further them along in life. Then again, the whole concept of why education exists in your country determines what the phrase get ahead in life means. In this country, we tend to talk about our economy, our society being meritocratic. I did an episode on that back in 2021. This society isn't meritocratic. It's never been meritocratic. Ever. Ever. This is something that they've told like poor people to keep poor people from getting pissed off in recent decades. But this society isn't about merit. It's never been about merit. Then again, I haven't looked up what the term merit means in a long time either. So it's possible that it's about merit because one of the great things I've learned, and I've told you all this, is a lot of words don't mean what we think they mean. We often believe a word means something when in fact it can mean the Exact opposite. I'll give you a great example. The word thrive, which you hear a lot about, does not mean what you think it does. Now, yeah, you're going to go, you're going to run to a dictionary, and it's going to tell you that it means prosperous, yada, yada, yada. But I've actually torn up a word apart. I haven't put that work forward yet, but I have tore the word apart. And the word does not mean prosperity in any stretch of the imagination. Does not. Does not. But that's for another time. Um, the system, the society is not meritocratic. It doesn't work off of merit. It works off of privileged position. Now I know privilege has gotten overused. People are pissed off at the word privilege. But the word privilege is correct in usage here. 
It is about privileged position. And sometimes it's about um, uh, prodigy position. If you are a prodigy of somebody with massive privilege or you are a prodigy of somebody with significant privilege, that can increase your ability, that should increase your ability of success. And by the way, this isn't just me talking about this. There's been studies that actually document this. Education <clears throat> was thought for a brief moment, especially massive compulsory um, public education was thought to be a great equalizing force. However, this society built its educational institutions on funding patterns that favor those soci those communities. Not well, I guess societies also because society means micro and macro structures. So. Okay, but those communities already with resources and finances and money. It penalizes those places without resources and money. Which results in distorted outcomes. For the people with money and resources already, their children typically are gifted with greater outcomes than people in communities that don't have those resources. This is why education is very predictive. On a macro level, from looking at the United States and This this is an interesting story that I don't know the um, you know the whole tune to as as I would say, but I know some of it and it's quite interesting. If we go back to the 1970s, and I've I've actually referenced this before, but I I just it is so predictive and we look at the West Virginia textbook wars as was the title given to it by the dollop d-o-l-l-o-p episode that I have listened to about 40 times if we do that we see something very similar to what's going on today, but also we see, the, we see the seeds being planted to the hellscape that we are living in now. The idea that teaching children too much because it literally liberates the mind when you allow children to think outside of what they've been taught, rather that teaching is positive or negative, Teaching them a means of dissecting the world that allows them to have a bigger view than that which they were given living in their towns or their communities is not a negative thing. But these people took it as that, mainly because they said, "This you're changing our culture, we don't like what you're teaching them. And a lot of what they didn't like their children learning about 
had to do with black people, homosexuality, and women's rights. But, to be fair, it was kind of black people and homosexuality that they really had a problem with. It was led by, the opposition was led by a woman, so they were able to duck and dodge for a while, you know, the whole thing of, well, maybe you guys are just anti-woman, because it was like, but we have a woman who's leading it, so, you know. But the seeds, really, of what we're facing today, planted there. You go up to um, Ronald Reagan, saying that the problem of the 1960s was the liberal education that these kids had gotten, and wanting to move away from that, so that the kids no longer got a um, liberal education. I was watching black professors from the 1980s, lectures that they gave, this was five or six years ago, and I was watching them talk about the, the absolute tragedy that young Americans were not being taught math and science rich curriculums in the mid to late 1980s and pointing out how in other countries India Japan there's another one that I can't remember Singapore maybe there was another one maybe it was China I think it was China um but these countries were overly emphasizing math, science, and technologies in the mid to late 1980s because they understood that these were going to be the subjects that ruled the world in the upcoming future. They were training um, social worker personnel. That would be your humanities. That would be people who are rich in um, uh, uh, education structuring. That's, you know, your medical professions, including your doctors and nurses. That's a lot of professional people who take care of your society, who take care of your people. Additionally, they were training people to take menial jobs. Same, same thing. Now, granted, these folks weren't talking about this. This is stuff that I pieced together later. Um, and plus, I kind of intuited it. It's uh, There's a group of books by... Um, oh, I can't think of his name. It starts with a P. But there's a group of three books. They've been republished, updated. It's quite expensive to get the newer ones. It's a couple hundred bucks. Um... But essentially, if you read those books, they're, they're essentially encyclopedias, but they're different encyclopedias. Um, again, there's three of them, but if you read those, those, those books, you get in a kind of picture of what certain institutions do in the society and certain concepts are for in the society. In education, as I was pointing out, is there to to produce the type of future that you want. Um, which is important. When you look at what was happening, you have to keep that in mind as you look at what was happening with Reagan. 
the liberal education was the threat. These other societies were building not necessarily 100% liberal education, even though they understood that a number of the people who they were training were going to go overseas to work. They were, they were building people who can hold their society together. At the time they were building, and, I, and it's funny, I completely whiffed on that. I was going to say they were training people to be people who can hold together the society. But I said they were building people. And in essence, that's what education does. It does build you. But they wanted people who could hold together a society. This included the politicians that they were training. The United States at that time was starting to implement very shaky free market approach school structures and very shaky national curriculums that excluded anything that wasn't rooted in the disastrous, untrue American mythology. And as more and more information became available saying that the American way of telling history was mythological, it was untrue, it was terrifyingly horrible, the more the right wing pushed back to stop that type of information from getting out. Not only to stop that information from getting out, but to prevent it from ever being um, uh, produced in an education setting. At the same time, they were slashing the education budget. As you know now, but you may have not known back in the 1980s, the Republicans were debating seriously on whether or not to slash and cut and gut the education department. Now, they didn't have the votes, they didn't have the majority in any house um, or any chamber of commerce, but they were still talking about it because they assumed at some point in the future they would have the opportunity to do it. But if they couldn't do it presently, they were going to make changes at the state level in as many states as possible, and they did. With coordination from groups like ALEC and NAM and other, you know, acronyms, they went around the country putting forward these bills to recompose how education was done and how education was seen. And what we get then is by the time I'm in senior high, when I'm in my, my senior class of, of, of high school, I was working as a janitor. And I was talking with these guys who were on the staff there, the crazy, crazy bunch of old guys, um, the youngest being the leader, and he was in his either late 40s or early 50s. I think he was in his early 50s. Um, while the other guys were late 60s, 70s, and when, in one case, I think the one guy was in just touching 80, either 79 or 80, and, but an amazing group of guys to work with, funny as get out, oh, I heard stuff that I didn't need to hear, it was 
it was a wonderful time um, being 18 and hanging out with them guys. But um, we were talking one day because it was getting close to the end of my time there, and and um, school supplies were coming in. And one of the guys who was um, in charge of opening the back door so the truck could come and drop off stuff, he goes, man, 10 years ago, he goes, we're about to pull this off here, or someone's about to pull it off, we didn't, but someone was, um, and he goes, but 10 years ago, we would have had this whole cafeteria filled up, we would have had most of the gym, if not all of the gym filled up, and we still would have had stuff in the hallways, and I go, Man, you, you're crazy. There's no heck in a way. Because they were still going to fill up the cafeteria. And they were going to put some stuff out in the hall. But the gym was large. And as he said, we're not going to need the gym. Um, but I was like, man, you're crazy. He's like, no, no, no. He goes, I swear we didn't even pay what we pay now. And we used to get tons more stuff. And I go, man, you was crazy. And he goes, no, I'm serious. You can go ahead and ask him. He told me somebody to ask, and I was like, okay, uh, you know, I believe you. I did ask him, though. I did ask him, though. And the person was like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, we used to have pictures and everything. Like, it was crazy. Like, tons of stuff. And I go, what the heck happened? And he goes, oh, budget cuts, man. Budget cuts. Constant budget cuts from the state, from the federal government. Budget cuts. I'm like, what the heck? Really? He's like, well, why do you think, why do you think, you know, so many people have to bring in stuff now? He was like, there was once upon a time when we, at the end of the year, we were giving stuff to families because we had more than we needed. But now we have to tell kids each year to bring more and more stuff because our budgets keep getting cut. Wow. Now, I want you to think about what I talked about. Um, I want you to think about what I talked about. I want you to think about what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast here. The importance of education as an institution in preparing the next generation. You could tell a lot from a country by looking at how they treat education and the preparation of the next generation For the future. And I want you to think about how. From 1990. To the year 2000. Severe budget cuts. At a school. The size of the one that I went to. Had. 1500, 1600 total. Students between. K through 12. And. The result of those budget cuts was to force students who were already, many of them, disadvantaged by poverty, to bring in more supplies to their to the classroom. Now, today, it is tragically worse. Tragically worse. And looking at what happened in the, um, in the, uh, during the pandemic, and how the federal government was willing to give trillions of dollars to Wall Street and corporations, but they hemmed in haw about half a trillion dollars 
little bit over half a trillion dollars for educational purposes in this country. I mean, it is... What does that say about, again, the politicians' concern about preparing the way for the next generation? Education is not only the key to a certain future, because it depends again on the structure of your educational infrastructure, but it is also a means of testing your country's commitment to its future. There is so much that needs to change when it comes to education. Education should be one of the most heavily funded aspects of any society. Children should be going to school, elementary, or what have you, in palaces. They should be. I don't care where you're from. I don't care where you live. You should be going to school in a palace. But they don't. They don't. And by they, I mean people who want to make money off of schools. People who love making money off of schools. People who want to privatize schools. They don't believe uh, schools should be palaces. They believe schools should be indoctrination centers and places for the consumer culture to come in and ravage the children. Now, I was pleased in the early um, in the early 2000s to see that my school had not fall prey to fallen prey to bringing in um, vending machines. In fact, I remember when we were in school, this was in the late 90s, we were clamoring for a soda machine or something else that students could have access to. And the administration continuously said, no, you don't need that junk. I mean, we all ran downtown to the, well, it wasn't technically downtown, it was right to the corner, um, to the gas station right to the corner during lunch and stuff to pick up that junk. But, you know, you, you, you really didn't need it. And it typically caused more harm than good. Um, but in 2013, I went to the high school to see my niece perform. Um, she was singing at the time. And was shocked to see vending machines. And TVs in the hallways. I mean, it's... How, how do you want to really train your future? And seeing all that stuff just almost made me sick to my stomach. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you know you can always reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. You know that. I know it's a little bit early. Hopefully I'll find something good to add to the beginning of this because I don't have anything in mind yet. But hopefully I will. 
so it'll extend it just a little bit. Um, if you can help me out, CWB Podcast, CWB Podcast, hit me up on Cash App, hit me up on PayPal, CWB Podcast. whatever you can do guys whatever you can do and if you are planning on using anything you've learned from this podcast in a project that's going to make you money throw me a little dollars y'all I don't ask for recognition I don't ask for you to write me and ask me if you can use the bits and pieces that I know people are extracting from this All I'm asking for is financial support for the work that I'm doing. Big shout out to Dr. Oba Tshaka, O-B-A-T-S-H-A-K-A. Check out his show on YouTube, Black Power Media. Big up, Lukman Nishan, Kalanjis, Zhanga. Every time I say that brother's name, though, it took me a minute to be able to get his name. But Kalanjis Zhanga sounds like a rap name. Like, real hardcore revolutionary rap name. Kalanji Jonga. You know? Um, professional Left Podcast. Best of Left Podcast. How y'all doing? Brad Blog. Bradcast. Take care of yourself. Um, Burn It Down with Kim Brown. Mm. And... I think that'll be it for right now. Again, guys, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you know you can always reach out to me. I am your brother, Vimeo Diso Gaia. Until the next one, peace. And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who finally can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a prison